Welcome back to Not Too Busy to Write. I'm Penny Winter, author and book coach. Before I introduce today's wonderful guest, I just wanted to let you know that I'm doing a giveaway. If you enjoy listening to the podcast and would like to win a one-to-one writing coaching session with me, all you have to do is leave a review in Apple Podcasts. I'll be choosing one reviewer at random to have this free session. We can use this session for anything from agent submissions to editing a proposal or looking at a novel synopsis, whatever you like. Don't forget to get in contact with me to let me know your Apple podcast name. Um, You can do that by sending me a DM on Instagram or contacting me via my website. The links to both of those are in the show notes. That's just so I know who to contact when I chose a random winner. As ever, thank you so much for all of your support with the podcast. I really do enjoy making it and uh, reviews really help other people to find the show. So on to today's guest. Margot Villeron is a French-born writer based in London. Her debut novel, The Yellow Kitchen, centres around the friendship of three very different women over the course of one year in London, with the kitchen and the food prepared within it at its heart. Margot is the co-host of the Salmon Pink Kitchen podcast and book club, and she is also one of the runners-up in the 2022 Harper's Bazaar Short Story Prize. Margot speaks in this episode about why she has been so drawn to writing about friendship and food, how she uses her senses to really dive into the English language, and why she's chosen to both write and publish in her second language. We also talk a bit about her day job as a translation rights literary agent and what it's been like to be on the author side of the publishing process for a change. The Yellow Kitchen is out now um, and you can find links to it and also to Margot's newsletter and podcast in the show notes. Enjoy the episode. Thank you so much for being here today, Margot. Thank you for having me. I'm super happy to be here. Um, We're going to talk, first of all, about your debut novel, The Yellow Kitchen, which I've just devoured. Um, It's a novel about friendship and food and love and belonging. And um, I guess I wanted to start with the trio first, Claude, Julia and Sophie. And it seems to me like what an incredible trio. And we don't read about trios very often. Um, And such an incredible dynamic, especially in female friendship. And I guess I just wanted to start with like, It seemed to me that they are three women who almost don't belong anywhere except with each other. Oh my God, I love this. This is such a nice way to start. Um, Nobody has described them this way, actually. Um, But I think that the magic of a trio is like, it's always this almost unbounding relationship because you're you're burning together, but there is always one that will feel a little bit left left out because that's how the way you know heteronormativity and sociality made us believe that you always have to be a pair a couple either in a love relationship or even in friendships in any relationships in life you know a duo always works better I don't know when you go to school they always make you like stand in pair in front of the class so you can yeah. enter like properly um I've been re-watching The Handmaid's Tale recently and you know the women are always in a fit in a like working next to one another I don't know it's a very kind of way we structure society in general and then you have a trio that is a way that extra person like come and switches the dynamic constantly but why love as well is to kind of see it as that person can change 
Mm. It doesn't have to, you don't have to have the one with constantly changing the dynamic. This can change over time or depending on setting, who has agency, who feels more confident in that moment. And I think looking at free women, you know, around their mid-20s mm. in that type of, of city life and that also, also known each other at different times mm. uh, kind of allowed me to look into that as well. Yeah. Yeah, and it was it's it's so very particularly set in a specific time as well. And I wanted to ask about that. It's it's set in 2019. It goes over the course of a year. And it's a very, it's very specifically done for that for lots of reasons. You're very much anchoring us in time. There's very specific political things going on. And of course, as readers, we can't help but know what's looming ahead in 2020 as well, which sort of adds another layer, even though it's not about that. Um but yeah, so I, I guess I wanted to ask, because presumably you were writing it, sort of started it maybe before then. And at what point did you decide it had to be anchored in that year specifically? Mm-hmm. Yeah, my my relationship with time definitely shifted dramatically mm. as I was writing it, because I started before lockdown, before 2020, I had no idea what was going to happen to us. And it's true now, if you read it, you probably think, you have no idea what's about to hit you girls. Yeah. <laughs> you have it hard right now, but wait for it. Yeah. Um, and this I had, had no sense. It was always going to be in, 20, in 2019. Um, and as a person, and I think also probably as a debut novelist, there was something reassuring for me to follow the season. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am someone who is absolutely obsessed with seasonality anywhere and and do work my life around them a lot mm-hmm. um it just it reassures me it's very cozy uh and I think as someone was going to write on a long a longer form for the first time I found that quite helpful mm-hmm. I was working toward that year and I was kind of almost fretting following the seasons um and then the element of it being 2019 it's just, it was such a buoyant year. And that is a year that I really stayed with me on many levels. Um, but also I'm someone who really believes about the kind of the intimacy and building those kind of chronicle of intimacies and how the wider kind of picture has an impact on how you feel as a person, how you will interact with your friends. But, you know, you can't quite understand it as you go through it you only mm. realize it later on um and I was really interested in that and how that would can kind of affect our relationship affect our friendships you know when you come from different languages different linguistic bag- baggage uh different cultures and everyone is being affected and react uh differently mm. yeah and I let's talk about the three women at the moment as well because um they do come from three very different backgrounds Claude is raised in London, but is French from a French background, um, and and has had a very particular, very difficult upbringing um, and very isolated mom with a mother with with quite a severe mental illness. And Sophie's from an extremely privileged English background, but has been very isolated in her own ways in her particular family. And then there is Julia, who um, who has come from Italy as an adult. Um, but also her mother is an immigrant as well. And, and they migrated from Croatia to, to Italy when she was a very young child. Um, and so there's so many layers of identity going on that even the English person that's there is in some ways 
um, so lost in so many ways as well. But it's it's interesting because, of course, their friend, friendships, like you say, are really dynamic. They um, the dynamics that happen between them, especially with the political climate. And the kind of growing sort of, um, I guess, almost the sort of slight growing angst throughout the year of, you know, Brexit looming, like the actual implica- sort of the, you know, implementation of Brexit looming with these women from these different backgrounds um, and how that shifts and change their personal relationships as well. Mm-hmm. Yes, because, you know, they have they have intimacy between each other and that's, the daily that's about every day that's you know one we work is the way one pick up the fork today one you know decides to to cook a certain meal or or the way one is replying with very short um answers and I think that really you know that comes across the everyday but we tend sometimes to forget that before meeting our friends they also had a life mm. and you know they will they will prefer to to each other based on that and that's very much ingrained um and that was really important to me because one might expect that yes sophie comes from the more privileged background she has agency over the language mm. she has all that kind of you know the money and the confidence that comes with that but actually she has had very very little emotional ab- upbringing and education and she mm. actually really thrown from by any type of of love uh, and she does not quite know how to deal with that. Whereas, you know, Julia maybe is, is the one who feels more threatened by the political setting of things, um, not having a British passport and not being quite sure what will happen to her after Brexit is completely signed and dusted uh, and actually is not the headline anymore. You know, I think there is that fear as well. Yeah. Um, but she she grew up in a, in a very close-knit family where she's always made to believe that it would be fine for her because she has that that safety net of being mm-hmm. loved, of having some people around her. Whereas Claude is like always here, you know, kind of that very almost shadow constantly because yeah, she's always been on her own. She's interestingly independent, which makes her the one that's probably going to do the most finely every day. But she also struggles to be herself because you know, she's she's constantly fighting for her own little corner or making sure that everyone needs her, therefore mm-hmm. she's um, And I, you know, I think this, they can't quite see it as an everyday. And I think that's very similar with friends. Yeah. We can, as much as we think we know our friends, we interpret them so much more about how, you know, how we see them on a daily basis, but we tend to forget about all the background. Yeah. Um, and what shaped them, the person they are today, especially with adult friendships. Yeah. Um, so that was a very long and wily answer. <laughs> but. <laughs> but also, yeah, and Claude is is almost, in a way, she's a bit of a linchpin in that trio, isn't she? She is the owner of the Yellow Kitchen, which mm-hmm. um, almost is one of those things that brings, one of those places that brings them together, even though they each see each other individually and separately as, as, as duos as well. Um, but let's talk about food for a second. And um, there's so much gorgeous food description in this book. Um, so for anyone who enjoys reading about cooking and food, oh, you're going to be absolutely delighted. Um, but so where does that come from for you? Is that something that you've always been drawn to, to writing about food? No, actually. <laughs> uh, which is, yeah, it, this is like mind-blowing because so much of what I do right now is so working around food and yeah. writing about food and you know and food writing in general 
Um, but it, it's not. I wish it was, but it's not actually. Food really came with my life in London. It's how I, I made all my friends in London by, you know, just <laughs> getting around the dinner table, uh, mostly at home, really, because, you know, we all struggled to like pay our bills already. So we didn't yep. go out as much. Or just grabbing, yeah, any type of food after a night out dancing and just, you know, realizing having grown up in France, actually, I've been quite have had very little exposure to other food and French food. Mm -hmm. uh, and being both a vegetarian in France means you actually haven't had much of diversity yes. <laughs> in your food. <laughs> uh, so actually, when I arrived in London, my mind just exploded. It's like, mm. wow, all these flavors and textures. And wow, you can like put this and that together. That's a load. Like nobody's going to shout at you if you do this. <laughs> Uh, and that was just like amazing. And I think it just gave me confidence, um, not just with what I eat, but just, you know, by saying I'm hungry now and I want that. Uh, yeah. And that just gave me some sort of ownership and confidence, which I think I also need to start writing. Um, but also in terms of just writing, I write in my second language. Mm. And there is a lot of imposter syndrome coming through that. And, you know, Lacking your words, quite frankly, as well. I have to acknowledge it. You know, vocabulary is an issue when you are when you are not working in your in your first language, and being able to relate to something that's essential mm, uh, yeah. is actually really helpful. Mm. Uh, because if I am not sure about the word, I would be like, "What did I taste? What did it feel like? Yeah, like you know." What, how did it sound when I like chew this and that's just really reassuring because that I know and even if the word isn't quite accurate it is to me because that's how I experience it yeah as a person and that like kind of gave me that freedom to just break through with grammar and just be like well let's be honest I'm never gonna master that Oxford comma or whatever but <laughs> anyway it's hotly debated so there's no need to master it just say I've just chosen exactly. how I like to do it yeah <laughs> but you know but I know one anchovy tastes like on a pasta to me and that nobody can steal it away from me um, I love that so you're, you're kind of leaning quite heavily into your senses as you write in English yes totally mm. um senses and and reason and I think in many ways you know days or so I don't know, I think I'm quite lucky, actually, to be able to do that, to be able mm -hmm. to think, oh, you know, I don't know, there's different rhythm and different melody to thinking across languages. I tend to say I don't translate in my head ever, mm -hmm. but I do swirl around a different baggage that I have, um, and this I really enjoy. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you about that. Um, so your first language is French. Um, you went to university in Montreal. Did you study in both French and English or in French in, in your undergraduate? I studied in French. You studied in French. And so, and here you are writing in English. And I would love to talk with you about that decision to write this in English rather than writing in French. Um, was it, um, was it really clear right from the beginning that you were going to do your debut in English? Yes, um, very much so. I I have a quite fragmented relationship with language and with my own uh, language. Um, you know, I just I had to break to break up with it in a, in many ways. Um, me as a personal decision and because of my relationship with my home country, mm -hmm. um, but also 
Uh, language has always been something that was quite difficult. Actually, language in French for me is quite difficult. Um, I was a very late reader, a very, very late at speaking, very late at writing. Mm. had a lot of issue with writing uh, when I was younger. And, uh, you know, in France, this is grueling at school of doing like the dictée. They were like, you get your professor just walking around the room and talking and you have to write at the same time. Oh, my gosh. And then they just like pick every single mistake and they start from 20 and they go down. And I would be the pupil who every time had something like minus 37. And I just like the shame from that is just ingrained so deeply that the idea of having to write in French just like makes me really worried. Um, And I love moving to Montreal because they have such a different approach to French again. Really different. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And that like gave me that freedom. And I think that's also why I went there for uni. I just did not Mm -hmm. think to go to university uh in France at the time and and then I moved to London I had to to learn English as an adult yeah and that was amazing that was just amazing because I was at the end of that journey with French I felt a lot more confident about my French and myself as well you know not being 10 anymore and just you know being 18 or whatever being just very older and you know started to be like an adult and having a very like young adult absolute mad confidence of now when I look at it and I just learned English this way and it was just it was just amazing and and I think I I own it to the language but also it's it's my language yeah and um, gosh you know that is so fascinating that you feel such an affinity with English and you learned it as an adult it's just yeah. incredible isn't it I think it sort of says so much about how language is so much more about communication I think sometimes we we think of language as just the way we communicate but it's so much more complex than that I don't speak another language fluently although I did I did live in Thailand for a while and I spoke Thai quite well by the time I I left but it's been quite a long time so I wouldn't say that I speak it fluently now in any shape or form but I felt like um when I that experience of learning another language you know quite in depth I felt there was a whole lot of cultural stuff that came with the language um, that I felt almost like I was a slightly different person when I spoke in Thai than I was when I speak in English. Um, and it's and it's something I don't think we necessarily talk about. And we can talk about that a little bit more when it comes to your day job as well with translating. But I, I did was curious about whether or not you're going to publish this in France. And if you do, or if you, if you have sold it in France, would you consider doing the translation or would you hand over the translation to somebody else? I would, I, there is no plan for it to be published in France at the, at the moment. And if you were, I would have to hand over that job to someone else. Yeah. Um, I just, I think, I think I would rewrite the whole book and that's not helpful, but also yeah. specifically to that book, there was as well a decision of, what you experience in the language. And I think that's something you can probably relate now, you know, having lived in Thailand, there's some specific experience you will have had there. And maybe that you have only experienced and, and talked through in that language. Yeah. And what I found really hard, for example, is to speak about politics or sex in French, in French, because it's not something I've done as much as I have in English. Mm. Uh, because most of, you know, my last seven years I've been here and there are, quite frankly the seven years of awakening sexually and politically mm-hmm. and I I'm not quite sure I could do it the same way in French I think my novel my novel would have been a lot more naive and uh, almost a bit childish it made me a bit uncomfortable to write that um 
I found it really hard recently when we had the French election to kind of try to debate with my friend in France. Mm-hmm. I, and I had no vocabulary about it. And I felt really childish in the way I was trying to say, I disagree with that. I felt really childish where in English, I often feel quite, um, I can argue about, about my political views and I feel quite fluent about it because I'm used to it now. Mm-hmm. And I used to be quite vocal, but not in French anymore. And I think, you know, with translating the novel, I, w- I would encounter that problem. Yeah. And in fact, actually, I, I remember hearing Elif Shafak discuss this as well. She's a Turkish writer, but she has always written in English. All her novels are in English. And she uses a translator to translate back into Turkish. She doesn't do it herself. And she the way she talks about it's really beautiful, actually. She talks about the um the the kind of the the layer and the nuance that a translator will add to your work that um as the author she would just really not be able to get there, even though she obviously speaks Turkish fluently <laughs> um, and is quite confident in the language as well. But um, but she talks about the kind of how much a translator adds to the to the book as well when they when they translate the work. Yeah, yeah, I can I can see that, and I just think I would be I would almost censor myself. I think without realizing, I would you know I would look at it as an, like an editor. Where because yeah. I would be going back to my text, where I think a translator just steps in and like just wave weave in there and just do that that amazing work of yeah accommodating you in another language, but also does add those layers that you are not able to do, or because maybe you don't speak the language, or because you actually have too much agency over that text already to be able to do that. Yeah, yeah, I'd be really curious if any if anyone does translate their own work. It is really, it's almost like, um, in a way, um, translating, you know, novels into screen as well and how complex that can be. And some people do do it and do it, do it very successfully themselves. But often um, when you get an outsider, it, it's sort of, it's a, a really new, interesting thing happens with it. But so let's talk a little bit more about the, the, um, the structure as well um, and the perspective because you've chosen a really, really interesting methods of of storytelling. It's, you know, third person mostly um, from the three perspectives, but it's also there's a there's a first person perspective from each of them as well, which goes much deeper into their into their backgrounds and their own perspectives. And I wanted to talk about that decision. Um, Is that something that happened naturally as you were exploring the writing or was from the outset were you very clear that you wanted to see from each of their perspectives mm-hmm. now that, that i evaluated as, as i started writing um well the the very first draft of this novel which is dated back for quite a long time ago now was actually only in the first perspective of claude okay. uh, though i mean the draft is a big word actually it was just the first few chapters that you know when i was trying to toy around uh, the idea of writing that novel um and i think as well again there was a very kind of starting to write uh, type of thing and just feeling more confident to go with I, 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 because it just made me a bit more feeling safer. Um, and then I kind of stepped away from that. And at the beginning, I only I only kept Claude inter- interluding with all those kind of seasonal chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I just felt, if it wrong, I felt like I was not giving Sophia and Julia their opportunity to speak for themselves mm. and I just didn't want to be that person who was talking who was trying to write a lot about one can feel silenced 
um, to a point of actually never saying, I want to speak now. You know, I actually, I want to speak about this. I disagree. That's not how I experienced that. Or I feel really rejected by that and not give them their voice. I felt like, what am I doing here? Mm. Um, and so I started to to give to give their own chapters as well. Um, and I'm really happy I did because I think I think it was really important. Yeah, and it it works really beautifully. And I not obviously because you don't obviously quite know in the beginning if you are going to hear from everybody necessarily. And then I felt really pleased that I did. I was really pleased um, because <laughs> I think at first I thought it was going to be like you say it was going to be Claude's perspective that we heard from when we were outside of that third person. But um, but no, I was really pleased to get an insight into all three of them. I think partly because it's coming back to that idea of this trio and the tripod. And in a way, there's a um, kind of, even though like you're saying it, it's a, it can often be an awkward setup, but there's also some kind of a kind of balanced symmetry in threes as well. Um, so, yeah, so it was really sort of beautiful to be able to move through those different perspectives. And would you believe I was actually just in Lisbon um, when I picked it up? And I was reading it and it was so, 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 oh my goodness, there's a really gorgeous, gorgeous section in the middle of the book in Lisbon. Um, and I'd never been before and I've just been. And so it was really wonderful to read that as well. So there's a, it is a very London book, a very, very London book, I would say, but there's this little moment in the middle in Lisbon, which was gorgeous. Um, but, um, and on that as well, that, that it does, it did feel to me an incredibly London book. Uh, and it's not often that you read London from the perspective of foreigners. And as someone who is a foreigner in a different kind of way as a Commonwealth person um, in this city, it was so wonderful to read about London from the outside. It's both the outside and the inside. You know, it's uh, it's people who are part, very much part of London, but weren't necessarily um, born here with a big history of family here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, thank you for saying that. That was actually really important to me. And and I'm still just, you know, I'm still extremely grateful for my editor, for, for my agent as well, who just believed me from the beginning and, you know, just kind of gave, first gave me the confidence to do it and to publish someone who is writing in their second language, but also gave that perspective as well of, you know, London is is actually made of many people who are not from London. Yeah. <laughs> uh, mostly. And, and I found that really, really important. And I just, yeah, I'm just really grateful I had the opportunity to do it. Um, and it's been quite amazing to talk with, you know, other people, not only my friends who read the book and also reading their second language and live here or coming from abroad or, or just not from London yeah. uh, and, and seeing that, that London of that as well. And I'm just, yeah, I, I love that. Yeah, I've, um, um, Alona Bannister, who's an American author who's based in London, who's been on the podcast a couple of times with her books, her and I have discussed how we both think that any book that we ever set in this country in this city we we can't imagine not having at least one character that's just not from here because we're not from here and that perspective is so kind of part of our experience of experiencing mm-hmm. this country this sort of outside perspective um but let's talk a little bit about your day job because you also also work in publishing as well um you're a rights agent correct yeah and you handle translation rights um and I think it would be so nice to talk a little bit about that first of all what it's like becoming an author in an industry that you know from the other end um I know lots of people do it I can imagine does it did it sort of uh was it surprising in any way what what the experience was like or do you feel like you were well prepared for what the experience of publishing was going to be like as an author 
I think you can never be prepared for that <laughs> absolute nerve-wracking mad thing this is. Um, so no, but also being a bit more um, <laughs> rational and pragmatic here. Yes, I think I think you know I was lucky to to know. Um, I did make a pretty stern decision from the beginning that I will not be an agent when I look at my work. Um, and maybe there were some some cons about doing this, you know, and maybe I could have been more hands-on and more agency and, you know, use more my network or things like that. Um, but I just didn't want to do it. Mm. Um, I think there are two reasons. One, just uh, compartmentalizing is, I think, is just really important. Um, and, and we can talk a little bit about as well that after maybe like my process and how do I, you know, go along with having to, to juggle both time-wise but yeah uh, and that was really helpful to just say that's it here's a borderline let's say um but also just because I wanted to enjoy it and you know and I needed to be a bit naive and I needed to be a bit hopeful and I needed to like dream bigger than what I know is possible because I have seen it before I have I've seen the boat crash I know I know many good books on get published I know incredibly brilliant book get published and get lots of energy and not much happens afterwards you know i know i know that the 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 but uh you know the I, realities as well that that, that that it's not even the best work might fall a little bit flat when it gets mm-hmm. out there just for no, nothing within our control you know like things that are just outside of our control yeah yeah absolutely and I just, yeah, I just didn't want to think about this. Um, and, and and maybe as well, maybe, I should, maybe I'm going to regret saying that, but I think there was something quite selfish. Like I just, you know, I wanted to be it about me and my book and I just didn't want to, I didn't want to bring on my, my work in there like yeah. that side like that kind of daily paid job I do so I can be a writer on the side um and I just yeah I just didn't want didn't want that to fit through the experience so so from the very beginning and I think here I had the luck that I actually approached agents while we were on lockdown and I think it was also easier and we were like in full lockdown um because it would have been October 2020 mm-hmm. so there was no going to the office we were all fully at home and there was a thing that I felt I could actually separate it even more um and I actually just approached agents I didn't know personally or anything like that you know I did the research online I went through mm-hmm. look at who they represent write my little like covering letter and say I know you work with that person so I would love to have a conversation with you about this um and that felt really important to me to just do it this way mm-hmm. and really make sure that I was doing it for me and there was no influence of what what do I know? You know, yeah. I, I heard something about that, or or you know, you should be doing it this way. Uh, obviously, I sought advice, but in a way, anyone should do. But not from internet knowledge. I think, I hope that mm-hmm. why it, it's hard to say, right? Like subconsciously, I probably didn't do it as well, but um, but I tried to do it this way. Yeah, and then in terms of how you split your time now, because you've also written short stories, um, uh, you're hoping, hoping to hear that you're writing perhaps your next novel as well. But like, how is it that you're um, that that you shape your working your working life at the moment between the mm-hmm. two? 
Um, I, I write early in the morning uh, always. And I think that's also the way I can do it is any kind of words and work I want to generate that's not um, day job related has to come before because mm-hmm. once I start working, I find it really hard to go back. Um, and I think here there is, you know, uh, just question of mental space, but also because I write with, with so many good offers as well. It's hard sometimes to disconnect and being like, okay, I'm, I'm going to stop now working for you because, you know, I've finished my my job, my daily job, and I'm going to go and work for me. And that's mm-hmm. really hard. Like, it, it, I have found that really difficult um, mm-hmm. as a person as well. And, you know, wanted to to do the best you can for everyone including yourself yeah. um, and it's, 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 it's a difficult balance. Um, so I, I found doing it before work is really helpful weekends. <laughs> yeah. um, and then I do in the evenings, I can do editing. I can, um, I have a newsletter. I write a newsletter a lot mm-hmm. on the sofa while watching something and yeah. Know, just, hundreds of stuff at the same time like the washing machine I should have done two weeks ago uh, and all of these things uh, evenings are good but yeah fiction writing is in the morning I think in the morning I think that's so important there's a phrase that I tell some of my clients which is that um that we should always pay ourselves first and I think it, it's it's really important with any kind of create creative pursuit um wait where, where you want the best of you going into it in a way um and that it's okay to pay yourself first you know before your kind of other responsibilities you know your families and your you know uh it doesn't mean that you don't give a lot to your jobs and your families but it can mean that you can reserve to something really important for yourself first but so in terms of your day job um can you talk a little bit about what it is that you do because I think rights is something that you know a lot of people in publishing don't necessarily really understand they kind of go oh okay well I'll get a book deal but what does that what, do, what does it mean um that then there's a rights agent who kind of takes over and, and helps sell it elsewhere so could you just give a little bit of an explanation about what it is that you do mm-hmm, absolutely um the word of rights is quite wide but <laughs> to to kind of put in a few words um so, and I work from a literary agency, so I'm coming from the agent's perspective here. Um, what happens is once an offer is signed with, a, with an agent that will be working with them in the English language, um, they get then affiliated to our team of translation rights uh, agents. And we basically do a very similar job, probably less of, you know, the kind of initial editorial process. Um, but as soon as the book is ready to go on submission, we start talking about our own submissions across the world. Um, and the idea is that then that book will be submitted to editors, um, you know, anywhere, anywhere we, we work all, all, all over the places um, and find them publishing deals there. So their books can be translated and published um, in, in all those languages. Um, it's amazing. Quite frankly, it's quite special jobs. And I feel really yeah. like I do that as well. Um, just seeing covers, seeing titles, seeing it's just it's amazing. And also, as someone who, who does genuinely love languages, I just I just love engaging with all those conversations constantly. Yeah, and there's something quite special, isn't it, about the kind of individual regions putting their own kind of cultural sort of um, 
touches onto covers and onto titles and things where everything just changes a little bit. Um, I had a small experience that I've, I've, I sold my book in a few regions and um, it was really interesting. I ended up having an editor from, from one country kind of come back to me with quite a lot of questions. And I was just like that, that process that they were going through in terms of translation and stuff was so incredibly uh, detailed. And it was, it was really incredible as an author to see other people around the world taking your work really seriously as well. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. Yeah. Like kind of, yeah, being acknowledged as well in different um in different places and seeing how not just it will translate but how it will fit within like a different type of context and and conversation and what and what type of conversation actually your book will will lead to mm. and, and I find that as well often quite um fascinating to see not just the take on media but the take on readers uh in different mm. in different countries um and I think that's always quite telling as well of where that specific location is at, uh, economically speaking, um, culturally speaking, politically speaking, yes. I think it's very much relevant. And so, because of that, do you um, do you have more regions that you specialize in? More like, um, are you um, you know, do you specialize in, in more um, European, or do you kind of you cro- you cross the world worldwide? Um, yes, yeah, so on that, uh, agencies and publishers, we work differently. Uh, some places we kind of assign either an imprint or a list of agents, and those agents will be working across the entire world mm-hmm. for those specific books. Um, the way I work uh, where I am at the moment is that I work across our entire agency, so all our offers, but I do specialize uh, in a few countries. Mm. The idea being to... To kind of have very uh, close relationship with those editors and being able to know them really well, and you know also travel, um, yeah. which has been a little bit on old, but um, I am actually going to Frankfurt Book Fair next week, uh, you know, to kind of uh, see all of them. So at the moment, I am mainly working on France, Italy, Germany, and uh, across Scandinavia. Mm. And that's because that's that, those relationships are so crucial, certainly to you know um, to an author's. Um, main agent that they have that they're that they're on their list of and so I can imagine it's hugely beneficial for you to have these relationships in all these countries you know equally yes Yes, totally you know being able to say oh I know you love that book you Mm. should read one now like it's quite special to be able to to do that yeah and also like you're saying it's so fascinating to kind of get such an insight into a country based on what editors are telling you about what they're looking for and how they're finding readers in their country are responding to things that they're publishing as mm-hmm. well like what a fascinating yeah. insight mm-hmm. oh well thank you so much for being here today to talk about all of this um the yellow kitchen is is such a beautiful novel congratulations it's it's so gorgeous um and I hope I hope uh, we're going to hear from you again. Are you working on something new? You don't have to tell us what it is. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I, am, I am working on something new. So I very much hope you will hear from me again. Excellent. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. Mm-hmm.